So we're going to end up in the 14th verse of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. We left off there. Paul, in his continual discussion about the wisdom of men versus the true power and strength of God and the wisdom of God, and, and keeping in mind that you know, the fundamental problem at the church at Corinth, who's been around now about five, six years, is that they are, they are coming apart because the different groups in the church, which is indicative of the city, which has so many different factions in that city, are beginning to work against each other, being so much selfish. And uh, there is this hyper-spiritual group who thinks they have an air of superiority over the rest, and it's kind of causing all these breakups and fissures in the church. Paul says in verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Earlier, he talked about the cross being foolishness to those who think they are wise. He says of those who are wise by the ways of the world, they are foolish. And they think of things foolish, and one of the things that they think is foolish is the Spirit of God. The natural man is, is the man of the world who, who lives according to his natural impulses. He says they, they don't understand the Spirit of God. He's going to talk more about spiritual things throughout the book. It is true, the Spirit of God, you know, is capitalized. It is the Holy Spirit. But we, we ought to understand that Paul, thinking also in Old Testament terms, is that Spirit of God being the essence of who God is, His, his nature, His character. It, 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 is, it is all that God is, the holiness of God, all of His attributes, is, is God working. And, and the Holy Spirit is is those attributes of God in that third person working in the life of the church, yes. And when we encounter the Holy Spirit we, who dwells within us, we encounter the full measure of, of God's nature and his work in our life. Cannot take apart and separate out the characteristics of God. He said they don't, the world doesn't understand that. They can't understand them because they're, they are not spiritually appraised. They cannot understand uh, what it means to be of the Spirit themselves. The idea of being appraised is the idea of discernment or judgment. It means something like this. The lost cannot understand the saved. The world has changed. Our culture today is reflective of the culture of the last 2,000 years in most of the world. We have lived for a good part of American history with a culture that identifies with the Christian worldview. Even, even though not everybody was a Christian, I get that. But the Judeo-Christian, the Jewish Christian worldview of right and wrong and God and spirituality, that was the world in our culture in America. That doesn't exist that way. It's changing. Uh, and it's hard for people who come from my background and uh, you know, baby boomers and even to some degree Gen Xers and up struggle with that. We don't understand why they look at right and wrong differently and they accept things differently. And, and, and we don't understand why younger generations look at things differently. You know, it's because the worldview is different. And whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. And by the way, that is indicative of the rest of the world for over 2,000 years. That's how the world simply is in its natural state. 
So, while we find it hard to imagine that people can't understand our Christian worldview and our goodness and decency and our love of life and the love of right and wrong and the things that we think that all people should value because we grew up with all of them valuing that, that's the way it is. They cannot understand. They cannot make judgment of that. And churches who don't grasp that struggle to connect to the world as it is. And I see a lot of churches who do that, who, who struggle because they don't understand that lost people today are different than lost people 20 years ago in the way they view the world and the faith. You've got to get that. So he says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, for he himself is appraised by no one. In other words, we who are fathers of Christ, our ultimate appraisal, <laughs> our ultimate judge is Jesus. Now, these, these verses in the English are a little bit difficult. I mean, the Greek are a little bit difficult, and it comes out a little bit difficult in English. But the basic idea is this. They were, at that time, subjecting themselves to the world's view. You'll see it a little bit later, and people were going to court for lawsuits. You know, they allowed a certain amount of sexual morality. There were all sorts of issues in that church, as we go through, that we find odd, but they were part of that culture, kind of like part of the culture we live in today, even. And so the spiritual appraisal is the world cannot understand the Father of Christ, and we aren't held to the standards of the world. We're here to something else. He kind of loosely quotes, loosely quotes Isaiah 40, 13. He says, For he who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will, who, for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. We deal with the mind, the soul, the essence of Christ. We have that. The world doesn't. And they cannot understand it. So basically, as a follower of Jesus, I have to understand that those who are outside of Christ cannot truly grasp the life I lead. And it is my responsibility to try to understand their world. And if we don't attempt to understand their world, not adopt it, not embrace it, but understand it and encounter it and engage it, we will have a hard time translating the gospel to them. And that's our failure. They reject the gospel, that's on them. But if we don't do a good job of connecting with them, that's on us. That's our responsibility to do that. Chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, <laughs> but to men of flesh as the infants in Christ. Now, there was all, understand the background. There's all this division. And part of the division is some rejecting Paul as an apostle and saying when Paul came, he just taught this very infantile kind of Christianity, the very basics. You know, when Apollos has come by and Apollos is eloquent, you know, they're the apostles, and now other people have probably come who have a deeper sense of knowledge. And always in Greek culture, always, there were people who, who had 
who claim to have great spiritual insight of, of not just Christianity, but any philosophy. They had extra knowledge. You see that coming. You're going to see people, we'll see later on in, in 22 when we get to those passages, you know, people who talk about the speaking in tongues gives them a special giftedness. You're going to see all of that in there. And Paul is coming back to the basics of his encountering them. And he says, when I came to you, I didn't give you everything there was to give. He said, I gave you very little because you weren't spiritual. You were lost. You were men of flesh. You were infants in Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing. In verse 1, it says men of flesh. In verse 3, he will say you were still fleshly. It is basically the same word in Greek with a slightly different ending. And that ending changes the nature of things. In verse 3, he is saying, you are men of flesh by nature. In other words, you were outside of Christ by the very nature of who you are. You were lost. I couldn't give you depth. In verse 3, he says you're still fleshly. He's not saying you're still a flesh. Your nature isn't flesh. The word fleshly means to be characterized by it. In other words, you still are characterized as if you were a lost person. In other words, you're a saved person living as a lost person. I'm going to get to that verse more in a minute. Here's the thing. In verse 1, you were once lost. And I expected you to live and understand that lost people. But now you're saved and you're still acting as if you're lost. I say this quite frequently. We cannot expect lost people to live like saved people. We cannot expect people who don't know Jesus to live like people who do know Jesus, in part because people who do know Jesus still don't live like they know Jesus. We ought to expect the world to live like the world. That's who they are. What's sad is when people who say they're followers of Christ live like the world, and they're characterized by the same world. And that's tragic. It's when Christians and churches, and now entire denominations, start accepting the fleshly attitude and characteristic of the world, and they bring that into the church or their life or Christianity, have you look at it, and they adopt the character of the world, saying that's how we reach the world, and that is pure garbage. And those churches and those denominations are dying because they're reflecting the fleshliness. They're taking the character of the lost. Cannot do that. You must love the lost and understand the lost and connect to the lost, but you cannot live and act like the lost. I have an acquaintance. This is going out. Yeah, but I don't think they'll watch this. Oh, well. I have an acquaintance that I've known for a long, long, long time. And he's, and he's talking about reaching younger people. We always want to reach younger people. Everybody, we want to reach younger people. Well, I get it. I love reaching younger people. We reach a lot of younger people. Still want to reach a lot of older people. Let me give you a hint. If you, all you do is reach younger people, to your church, 
that's fun. You ain't had no money. <laughs> you know, people between the ages of 45 and 65 who are in the prime of their, of their careers, that you want to reach some of them too, because you know why? They just have more to give. So, and, that, and you're in that still barely, uh, Terry. And, uh, and, and so, I like reaching everybody. I like reaching older people because they can still cook, you know, and they pray. And, they, and, and they're faithful, and they're and given, and I like reaching younger people, the energy, and I like reaching middle-aged people because they give, you know. So I like reaching everybody for different reasons. But, you know, some of these guys, and I saw this, this guy in a long time, he wants to reach younger people. And, he, and he's trying to find new ways of reaching them. But he still brings the same old message, not the gospel. I'm talking about the gospel but the same way of doing it. For instance, not too long ago, kind of dealt with him a little bit, and he was talking about, okay, you know, in, in, in sharing, sharing Jesus, he, he just basically goes through the Roman road. Remember who the Roman road was? All the passages in Rome lead somebody. Here's the problem. Younger generations, they don't believe the Bible is God's word. They don't accept the Bible as an authority. You know what's really hard to do? Is to use the Bible to reach Gen Zers, millennials, to reach Josh. Josh doesn't like the Bible. His age group doesn't read the Bible. Josh does. Josh reads it in the Syrian language. He's very impressive. So I have to find other ways to connect. I've had to change the style that I preach. Thank goodness I got to get rid of coats and ties because I got tired of wearing them, you know. But what was that? Is that Mike? Did you say? Your favorite? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Mike's with me. We don't have to dress that way. What, I, what I'm saying to you is, and I hear this all the time, well, we just got to try harder. Yeah. No, not really, because what you're trying is not going to connect. Understanding where people are in the world is how you connect to them. Doing the same thing you've been doing that's been ineffective is not going to be more effective just because you do it better. It doesn't work that way. Listen, let me use this illustration. I hate cauliflower. And if you cook cauliflower with butter and bacon and cheese, I still hate it. You can dress it up, but like it's like the pig. No matter how much you dress the pig up, it's still a pig. And cauliflower to me is just flat out a pig. It's an absolute fraud in every way. See what I did there? Paul says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you weren't able to eat it yet. And even the, indeed, even now, you're not able. And so he's, oh man, can you imagine how much that hurt? He said, listen, I taught you the very basics because that's all you could understand. And even now, you can't understand that. Paul, Paul's saying like, I can go deeper. Just don't. <laughs> no. So this sounds, this sounds kind of cocky, and it is. But ever so often, I've had people come up and challenge them, and they start talking about this, the, you know, my theology, and they challenge things, and so they start doing it. And, and so every so often when I get tired of it, I just crack it up a little bit and I start pulling out Greek and Hebrew terms and, and words and phrases and all that. And that just sort of ends it. Because I know this, they're just, they're here 
And, 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 you know, they're just giving me a hard time, and it really ticks me off. So I just get kind of arrogant about it. And sometimes I make Greek words up that don't even exist. Tim, you've done that. I just make it up. I'm like, whoa, wow, you know that word? No, then get out of here. Because you can't handle it. So here's what Paul's doing. He doesn't make anything up. Actually, he does make a little bit up because he's writing the New Testament, but it comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, I only gave you a little bit of milk. You can't handle the real thing. And so... He says, you can't handle it now because, verse 3, you're still fleshly. You're characterized by the word of the world. You should have grown up, but you haven't. There is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? And you're not walking like, walking like mere men? He said, you don't think you're fleshly? Well, if you're jealous of each other and you're fighting amongst one another, isn't that the evidence that you're characterized by the world? Isn't that what the world does? Do you ever watch the news shows? Do you, I, get, I don't even watch it anymore. You ever read that, all this stuff? They're always fighting. And it's, it is literally to the point where if this group says they like this, this group doesn't like it. And if they change, then the other group changes. We see that all the time. They, we go back and quote, you, six months ago, you didn't like it. Now you like it. Why? Well, because they don't like it. And so now, whatever. That's the world's functioning. You ever see children fight? I mean, you go in there, you know, the little, little toddlers, and one kid is playing with something else, and then another kid picks up a toy, and all of a sudden they want that toy. They weren't playing with it earlier, but now they want it. It's the natural baseness of their lives. That's the world, through and through. When it slips into the church, it happens. So Paul says, when one of you says, I am of Paul, in another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not mere men? In other words, are you not sinful? He goes back to what he had said in chapter 1. Some of you are saying, I'm Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm Cephas, I'm Jesus. Now he's just doing him and Apollos, because for, and he'll see it in a minute. He said, aren't you just acting like children, like the world? That's what you're acting like. So why, why should I give you the depth when you're just children? You ever go to a restaurant and see the kids' menu? There's not much depth to it. Now, it's always good because they usually have mac and cheese or chicken nuggets. And sometimes I'm just a little jealous because sometimes I like some mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. Verse 5, he says, now he's not critical of Apollos because in other places we'll see later on that he and Apollos are tight. He says then, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Here's what we both are, servants. To whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one of you, are servants. We are servants. And our ministries put you in a place of believing. So, evidently, there are some who came to faith at Corinth. When Paul left, others came to faith through the preaching of Apollos, who was evidently a fairly sophisticated speaker and quite eloquent. Paul had no problem with that. He said, but we're both servants. That's all we are. We're both, doing, we're both serving the Lord. Does it matter? I planted, Paulus watered, and God was casting the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is really anything. But it's God who causes the growth. I mean, really. It's, some people, you know, are really good at, at building relationships and entering, you know, and, and sharing the gospel and, and planting. And some people come along and they're really good at developing that person's faith. And at some point, they just they come to Christ, but it's God who brings them to Jesus. 
I, I, I know we use this term soul winner, and I understand why, but I hate that term because I've known too many people who think they actually win people to Jesus. You don't win anybody to Jesus. Jesus wins them to Jesus. You're just there to share the gospel. That's really what it's about. I've led people to the Lord. I've never saved them. I, I may have done a pretty good job explaining everything, but the Holy Spirit saves them. I don't save them. You know? And sometimes people ask, you know, invitation, people don't get forward, you get frustrated. No, it's not my job to save them. That's God's job. If people don't give their life to Christ, if I've done what I'm supposed to do, now I'm not saying I always do that, but if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, why would I be frustrated? That's, on, that's, that's Jesus' job, Holy Spirit's job. My job is to get them there. Now, yeah. I understand there's a lot more to it than that. I get all that. But I'm just telling you, that's the whole thing. God gets the glory. That's why we honor God and glorify God, because we didn't save him. He did. Verse 8 says, Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So we're one. We're working together. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. He uses two analogy. You know, we're working together. You're God's field. You're God's building. We're working to one. You work together on that. Have you ever, have you ever made anybody have trouble working together with? That shouldn't happen in the church. I'm going to say this because she's not here. She's working in Awana. But my wife and I can't cook together. We just don't work. Here's why. She wants every recipe to be exacting and written down and follows it to the, the letter. The, the, she is a Pharisee when it comes to cooking. I'm a free-willing, fun-loving man of God when I cook. I'll add a little of this. and I'll, I've made stuff before. I don't cook much anymore. I made stuff. She said, that's good. Why'd she put in it? I don't know. Can't make it again if I try, but it was good. I'm a free wheeler, which is good on some things. It's not good like when you're making a cake. Oh, I'll be honest. I was making some, some dessert the other day, and I started free wheeling, and when it was over, it was horrible. It's good when you're chicken frying stuff or, you're, you know, all that. Not, but we can't cook together. We get in arguments and fights. And there's nothing drives me nuts when I'm starting to cook. You know, I'm doing something. And she'll come over and turn something over that I'm cooking. I'm like, I didn't ask you to do that. Don't turn over my steak. I've got it covered. But we're really good married together. We, we have a great life, so we're, we're one. And, and so almost everything else we're agreement, except for cooking and watching TV. <laughs> the only two things I really care about, and we're not really good on that. He says, you guys are one. Look what he says in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given me. Now, here comes Paul. He's bringing, he's bringing out the spiritual stuff. According to God. When people start saying according to God in the Bible, you should listen. His grace, which is unearned. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Paul is not always the most humble of guy, but I get it. Sometimes they forced him. He said, I was like a master builder, but a wise one. What I do? I laid a foundation. And another man's building on it, but that's okay. But you got to be careful how you build on it. Now, he's saying you got to be careful how you build. So, you know, I'm not a building guy. I'm not a contractor. But, you know, you got to lay out a good foundation. And then you can build on it. He said, what I did when I came to you guys, I just laid the foundation. I taught you about Jesus. That's the foundation. 
And, and, and others came by and they built on it. Fine, but be careful. Be careful how they build. Apollos is okay. But some of these other knuckleheads, you better be careful how they build on the foundation you lay. And he goes on and he talks about it. And you'll see why. No man can ever lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation. So, that, so understand our primary responsibility is to preach Jesus. I'm preaching about this Sunday, the last of the impact messages. Hallelujah. I'm so tired of that. And, uh, you know, don't quote me on that one. I love impact. But I'm ready to move on. The last one is about reaching people. And I'm going to talk, what do we do? Our basic ministry and philosophy is Jesus. It's Jesus now, Jesus tomorrow. It will always be Jesus. We do nothing else but preach Jesus. We're okay. Starting in October, I'm preaching Jesus on the authentic Jesus, five weeks of Jesus. I mean, you just laid Jesus. He is the foundation of everything. Now, a man builds on the foundation with different things. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Some of those are good to build with. Some aren't. There's an old song about the wise man built his house a certain way on the go, whatever, all that stuff. So you got to, and Jesus uses analogy in a lot of different places. Now, the purpose isn't for us to go try to figure out what is gold, and what is straw? What does that consist of? That's just wasting your time. It is, how do you build? What is, what, what is the evidence that you're building? Here's what he says. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire. The word revealed is the same word for apocalypse, revelation. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. In other words, fire comes, testing comes, and we'll see what remains. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you build your house on the rock, you build your house on the sand. They may look the same, but when the storms of life come and tear down the house, you will find, you know, both guys are saved, but one of them had built his house on the rock of Christ. One built his house, and the word of God, the rock, one built it on the sinking sand and destroyed it, destroyed everything. So what are you building on? What are you building with? That's what he's saying. Everybody has the foundation of Jesus. But some of these guys came along, and they're building, they're building with sloppy materials. Some of you read books by authors who are popular, and what they teach you is nothing but straw and hay and stubble. It's garbage. Some of you like some of the popular movies that comes out, and call it Christianity, and think, oh, isn't all that cool? And they're giving you wood, hay, and stubble and garbage. And you need to understand whether something that you're building in your life on, the foundation's Jesus, but you're with, whether it's things that stand the test of time. Whether it'll stand the trials and tribulations of life. Verse 14. If a man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Verse 15 says, if his work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he will be saved, so it's through fire. In other words, he's not talking about someone losing their salvation. Next week, we'll, we'll see that he, what he's talking about, somebody may not be saved. He just, he's not saying that the people aren't saved to build with poor materials. He's saying, but what they built won't last. Remember Sunday when I preached about legacy? Y'all all remember that sermon, right? It was only four days ago, three days ago. The legacy we leave behind. It's how we've impacted people's lives for Jesus. That stands the test of time. If you build a legacy on what you've done, it'll perish. Basically, when you die, it'll perish. There aren't too many people who are going to sit around long after the funeral's over and remember you. Once they've packed up the fellowship in the, out in the commons, gone home, and they get back to life, there ain't a whole lot of remembering left. 
unless you impacted their life. And so what Paul is saying to them, y'all have focused on the wrong things. You're looking at personalities and people. Later on, we'll see, and what he's talking about now is some of you are, are looking at yourself and what you're capable of doing, the gifts you have, and you're forgetting who gave you the gifts and think what you can do is superior to someone else. And what, you, what you're building, church at Corinth, is this foundation I've laid. And, and, and Apollos has done a good job, and Peter, it's not them. It's you. You're building with all this stubble. And he's going to come along and he's going to look. Give him examples. Look, over here. What have you done? You've got a man in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, and you put up with that. You're taking each other to court. You're arguing about eating meat offered to idols or not. And you, you, your whole everything is just a bunch of stubble on a foundation of Jesus. And it's just all going to be swept up. That's what's going to happen if you're not careful. John does the same thing a little bit in the book of Revelation when he talks to those seven churches and tells some of them, like the church at Ephesus, you have lost your first love. You better get it together or the persecution is going to overwhelm you. And that's what we need to realize. We need to realize we have built upon Jesus. What are you building with? And here's the thing. People in the church who are fighting, who are splitting, not that you can't disagree. Healthy disagreement is okay. But I'm talking about pettiness and bitterness and resentment. That's hay and stubble. That won't last. You won't last. And people who have forgotten that we're encountering a world that is lost, and the most important thing is that they need Jesus, and we've got to figure out how to connect with them. If you don't get that right, you're going to trouble. So what he's saying is this. Look at that. Quit living like the world. Quit living like lost people. That has no value. Instead, get it together, man. Start living like a person who's a true follower of Christ. And then you can start connecting with lost people like you're supposed to be doing. And start reaching people for Jesus. Well, it's seven. And I'm out of time. So, I'll let y'all go. And I'll see you probably Sunday. I hope to be here. Hope you will too.